Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. All righty. Welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I am Chase Wilsey. Going to be your host here again of the Smart Investing Show for about the next hour. As always, taking your calls, talking about what you want to talk about. You know, have a question about a stock in particular, maybe looking at buying, selling, or holding. Definitely interesting time right now to, to maybe look at some companies. I, I think there's a lot of great opportunities out there in the market now as things have started to pull back. Kind of speaking of the market, I, I mean, gosh, got to say it, it's been an interesting couple of months. And, you know, I said this at the end of April, but thought May was going to be a, a very, very interesting month. And uh, that, that has definitely panned out to be the case. Yesterday, actually, we did hit what we call an intraday bear market. So we closed not down 20% from the high, but we did reach that at one point during the day. Uh, my my forecast here is I, I do think we will achieve a, a true bear market where we will close down on the S&P 500 uh, more than 20% from the all-time high. I don't know if it's going to be this week or next week, but we're, we're, we're pretty darn close here now. Obviously, the NASDAQ, gosh, down close to now 30%. So we've seen a lot of volatility here in those those big tech names that, that we've been recommending to stay away from. And i got to be honest here, a lot of them still, I think there's a lot of great opportunities elsewhere. Some of the big tech names still, still quite expensive, in our opinions, not quite reached that value territory. I, I got to kind of say, too, looking at all this volatility, you got to be careful watching a, a lot of the talking heads now on, on, on the news. I mean, you know, a couple months ago, they're saying, oh, this is going to be a great bull market. We're still going to see this bull market continue on. And, you know, we're in the middle of it, maybe the sixth, seventh inning. And now all of a sudden, those same talking heads just a couple weeks ago saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is a great buying opportunity. Buy the dip. And now they've shifted to the complete other side. You know, I, I'd be patient here. The I think we're we're going to have a lot more downside ahead. I, I mean, it, these market watchers be very, very careful. And this is the exact reason why at our firm, Wealthy Asset Management, why on the Smart Investing Show, we don't recommend buying the market. It's this kind of concept that people try in time, and it's impossible to do so. That's why it comes back to buying businesses and looking at the valuations of it. You're not worried about the day-to-day -day movements and the up and downs of what's going on with the stock market. That's what's gonna drive you crazy. You're gonna try and sell and then maybe buy it back at another lower price. I'll tell you, might happen once in your lifetime, not gonna happen on a consistent basis. Look for good businesses to buy at good prices. And that's what we're here for is to talk about those businesses. I do see Jim and Alpine already calling, but uh, I do want to again talk about some other things that, that have come up this week. So hold with me tight there, Jim. I will get to you here shortly. But I uh, do want to start with uh, energy prices. Obviously, that has been a big, big, I'm going to say issue for not only the market, but, but the day-to-day -day consumer. I mean, it is really hitting the wallet of, of uh, most people now. Energy prices continue to climb as regular gas prices at a national level hit a record $4.52 a gallon 
this past week, and then diesel prices actually hit $5.57. It did even rise a little bit further later in the week, but these were record, record levels. And I was just looking at last month, gas prices were at $4.08 a gallon, and diesel price will, prices were at $5.03 a gallon. So huge, huge increases just from one month ago. But I'm saying huge increases. Brace yourselves. If you look at one year ago, gosh, gas prices were at $3.04 a gallon and diesel prices $3.17 a gallon. What I would love to go back to those times, and especially here for us lucky California residents, prices for regular gasoline have now topped a record average of over $6 a gallon. And yep, I, I did pay that yesterday at a gas station. And, you know, partly on, on me, I made the mistake of, you know, wait until my, my tank was close to empty and then you're stuck going near, to the nearest gas station. I always tell people, you got to be smarter than that. And I fell victim to that 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 silly mistake. So make sure you're planning ahead now and looking for good gas stations because there's some that I see now 650 and it's just ridiculous. You want to make sure you plan ahead to pay for gas so you're not paying at the high gas stations. But with energy prices remaining high and, and companies needing to pass these costs to consumers, I do wonder if the 8.5% CPI we hit in March was not the peak. And I've been saying this, that I thought the 8.5% was going to be the peak level in inflation. And again, to remind you guys, it's not so much that inflation is going to go away and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're back at 4% inflation. No, I just, I thought 8.5% was going to be the highest level and might retreat to a level of like 8, 7.5% inflation. But now with these energy prices, again, they're a baseline for all these companies. You think about all the transportation, whether you're a food company, whether you're a product company, you have to utilize transportation to get your products around the country and or even the world for that matter. And now with these higher energy prices, you're having to pay more and more. Well, that doesn't mean these companies are gonna eat those costs. They're gonna likely pass them on to the consumers. So I do worry now that that 8.5% level could not be the peak and we could see higher prices to come over the next few months. So that's something to definitely keep an eye on. I'm gonna be very, very interested to see where one, energy prices go, and also two, how that's gonna impact the CPI over the next few months. Continuing on with the energy market, though, I, I just got to bring this up. I mean, you, you see a lot of rhetoric about how there's price gouging going on from energy companies, and that's the reason for higher gas prices. But realistically, the answer is much simpler and can be understood by supply and demand. And also, too, I got to point this out. I always hear people, oh, well, oil prices have come down, but gas prices have not come down. They are different. Oil and gas and, gas and diesel are all different. Oil is used to be refined into gasoline and diesel. I believe it makes up about 50% of the cost of gasoline and diesel, so they're definitely correlated, but there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between the two. And the thing that we look at is, again, that oil is the input cost. It's not the exact same thing. And one thing, too, that, that we're looking at is the demand side of the equation. We know coming out of COVID, we were, had really, really suppressed demand as people weren't traveling, they weren't driving. Well, now we've seen that really reverse. People are flying, as we've talked about. We did look at a, a study here recently that in March, the miles driven for consumers actually surpassed 2019 levels. So we're seeing higher demand. All else equal, higher demand generally leads to higher prices. The other side of the equation, though, and I, I believe this is the larger issue, well, it stems from the supply side. 
we know European refineries have been closing, and that has crushed their energy market. Gosh, they're in a whole larger world of hurt than we are here in the United States. But the European refineries, for example, Shell operated 54 refineries in 2004, and now management has a goal of just five by 2025. BP, another large European refinery, has also followed similar steps if they've tried to reduce emissions to apply to government standards. It's not just in Europe, though. You look here in the U.S., it has been a problem as biofuel blending mandates led to a spike in the cost of what is known as RINs or RINs, their compliance credits. And what this has caused is caused a lot of refiners to shift the refineries to biodiesel processing plants. If you look back to the year 2000, for example, there were 155 operating refineries here in the United States. And that's from the Department of Energy here where I'm getting these numbers. And as of last year, it had fallen to just 124. That's about a 20% decrease in the amount of refineries here in the United States. And again, we have much, much higher demand for the use of energy than we did back in 2000 across the world in particular. So that is not a positive. And I would make the argument that these refineries have gotten more efficient, more effective. But also, too, you need to be expanding that refining capacity, not so much reducing it. And the other issue here is where has the refining capacity increased over the last decade? I gotta say, two of our favorite countries, Russia and China, being uh, very facetious here, obviously, because we know we are rightfully avoiding products from Russia, oil products from Russia, but China also announced in March that it would eliminate all oil product exports. Maybe Europe and the U.S. should have understood the energy market better before trying to push everyone to this green energy idea. And and I'm not here to knock green energy. I don't want to be political about it. But this is now just crushing consumers. And and I just get irritated when you hear just all this rhetoric about the energy companies. It's a supply and demand issue. It's not price gouging. They're looking for where they're going to sell the most profitable piece of gasoline and piece of diesel. And also, too, I don't believe we should limit it here to the United States because then you're going to hurt our partners over in Europe. They would be absolutely destroyed if we stopped exporting those those products to them. This is a situation that has been caused by the supply and demand imbalance. And, and I just wanted to point it out so people are aware of it. And from an investing standpoint, I do got to point out, I mean, we've held energy now for the last few years. It, it, it was beaten up for quite a while. Oh, energy, that's the old way to invest. And now energy's done quite well, and I think refineries are going to be a place to watch over the next few months. Now, with that being said, if you're looking at buying refineries, I, I don't think I'd jump into them at these levels, but if you hold them in your portfolio, I, I'd put it in the hold category. I wouldn't be selling them. A lot of them pay good dividends. They're trading still at good valuations. There's not that buying opportunity, but I still think they're an interesting sector to watch here. And if there is a pullback, in the market, they get hit because everything else is going down. I think that could be a, a, a great opportunity. Definitely something to keep your eye on. Another area that, that we did talk about this week that, that came out in the news, well, retail sales. Retail sales had a, a very similar report to last month as the growth was strong, but much of the growth can be attributed to inflation and price increases. The headline number shows April retail sales climbed 0.9% compared to the month of March, and they were up 8.2% compared to April 2021. Now, it's important to remember that April CPI was 8.3%. Now, that tells me much of the retail sales can be attributed to price increases rather than the quantity of goods and services being consumed. 
Areas that were of note included gas stations. They're up 36.9% compared to April 2021. And then food and drinking services, they're up 19.8% during the same time frame. And overall, I'd say inflation is still not having a major impact on consumers' ability to consume, and that is likely to hold up the economy and, unfortunately, inflation. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not impacting consumers. I just talked about how energy prices are hurting people, also higher food prices. It is still impactful, but I don't think it's enough quite yet to limit the amount of people buying, you know, high-end purses, you know, buying cars, traveling, and especially, I, I'm going to say the service side. I, we've talked about this a lot. People going out to eat at restaurants. I just talked about that number. That was a very strong number. We talked last week about airlines and travel and how that's continued to be strong. I think that that is what's going to hold us out of the recession for 2022. I think we will see one again in 2023 as we start to constrain that money supply. And that's when I think you could see problems in the economy. Now, I, I, I want to be very, very clear here. A lot of times people say, oh my gosh, it's going to be like 2008, 2009. We're going to hit this financial crisis. It's going to be terrible. I don't think we're in any type of situation like that. I think we're going to have a very light mild recession in 2023 where we just have two consecutive quarters declining GDP as the Fed does try and rein in inflation. I do hope that we have the energy market resolved by then as well. I think if we don't, that's what could really, really hinder any potential recovery out of that recession because we cannot continue to see these elevated energy prices. That's what will continue to weigh on price increases. I don't care what the Fed does. If they choke off money supply, if energy continues to remain very, very elevated, that's going to really hinder prices, really hinder the economy. Next up to do talk about options trading. That That's a, gosh, something that we always talk about here. We're not traders. We're not gamblers. I get very irritated people. Oh, the stock market's gambling. It's gambling if you treat it like gambling. And option trading, that is gambling. There's ways to utilize options to your advantage and, you know, use protective puts and so forth. But if you're just trading options in and out, trying to make a, a quick buck, make these huge returns, that is gambling. And a lot of small investors we saw during COVID, you know, especially with the sports being closed back then, they kind of turned to different areas to, to enact that gambling attitude. And options was a, a particular area. It does look like that is pulling back, though. And I see here, are the small investors getting smarter or did they get burnt so bad by options trading that they're now backing away? The most recent data shows at the end of March Small investors made up 26% of total option activity. This was a decline from last year when it hit 30%. So again, we're trending downward. And the good news for investors is with less option activity, this could reduce the volatility in the market. That does not mean it will not continue adjusting downward, but it should mean the swing should not be as brutal if small investors do not hold options and begin panic selling. So I do think this is a positive for volatility. I, I would like to see that number even a little bit lower, but options are a very, very dangerous tool if not utilized properly. So please be careful if you're looking at options trading. You really got to know what you're doing. And I would say stay away from options trading. You can invest using options, but you really, really need to know how to utilize them, especially if you're trying to have safety in the portfolio. Last topic here before we do go to the phone calls, and I, I do want to open up the phone lines. As I said, I know Jim and Alpine, thanks for waiting patiently. I'll get to you after this topic. But if you do want to call in, again, you have a question about a stock, you have a general financial advice question, you know, financial planning, whatever it may be, that's what we're here for. Phone number is 
833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Last topic here I did want to cover. Well, we talk about Apple a lot on the show, and people say, oh, you've hated Apple for the last few years, and it's done so great, and now we've kind of started to see that reverse course. And again, it, it all comes down to valuations for us. And Apple, it, it's a great business. It just got too expensive. And I can't tell you if it's going to go to 30, 40 times earnings, but I can tell you 40 times earnings is very, very expensive. And Apple did get to a point where it was trading over 30 times future earnings. That's an exp expensive place to be. But now it's quite interesting. One of the famous investors from the big short, Michael Burry, has now turned his attention to Apple and is betting the stock will decline. And again, the big short, that was a movie on the financial crisis where he was actually betting that housing was going to fall and people thought he was crazy. Well, sure enough, he panned out quite well for the guy. Had a great, great period when a lot of other investors struggled uh, during that financial crisis. But uh, back to Apple, Burry is utilizing bearish puts to hopefully profit from a decline in Apple's stock. And from our perspective, I talked about this a little bit, but even with the recent pullback, Apple still trades at over 20 times 2023 expected earnings per share of $6.54. For a company that is now looking at sales and earnings per share growth in the single digits, I would not say this company is a value play. While we do not short or place bets against stocks, I would not be a buyer of Apple at these levels. Again, it's just too expensive, and you know, I'd rather be finding companies, and they're out there now, that are trading at 10, 12 times future earnings than a company like Apple that, that doesn't have that growth. Be, oh, it's buying back $90 billion worth of stock, and you got to look at the fundamentals. I, I tell people, well, look at the fundamentals. The valuations, they're still not that great. And also, too, that growth. You're now talking about, I believe it's about 7 9% on the earnings and about 4 or 5% on the sales growth. That is a high valuation for a company that now does not have double digit and particularly high double digit earnings and sales growth. So be very, very careful with, with Apple and a lot of big tech names they have pulled back, but I hate to say it, I think there could be more room for a pullback in those companies, which again could lead to that bear market prediction or finalizing the bear market prediction I have for the S&P 500. Again, there's a lot of other great opportunities out there. I think there's, you know, the financial sector, I think there's uh, transportation areas. That's where I'm looking right now. And so that people know, with the pullback, at our firm at Wilsey Asset Management, I would say we are now what I consider fully invested. And we have two different types of accounts here. We have growth accounts, we have income accounts. So growth accounts, we go down to about 1% cash. Income accounts, we go down to about 10, 12% cash. And we are about at those levels for our clients. We're very optimistic over the next couple of years where prices will end. Does that mean we're going to go lower? I don't know. I'm not sure if that's going to occur. We could go down maybe another 5, 10%, but I'm not concerned about that. I'm looking in down the road two, three years, and I can tell you, I'm going to be very, very happy, most likely, with a lot of the buys we're enacting at these prices. You got to be patient. You got to be cognizant that there is going to be volatility, but make sure you're finding the right companies at the right prices. All righty. With that, let's go out to the phones. And again, if you want to join the, the call on list here, it's 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. And with that, let's go out to Jim and Alpine. Hey there, Jim. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How you doing? 
Not bad, Chase. Not bad. Uh, uh, best of luck, by the way, next week. I hope you don't have to retrain Brent when he comes back. <laughs> well, he will be gone next week as well, so he's going to be real rusty when he comes back in a few weeks. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> you better get a stand-in. Yeah. So listen, you, uh, I do, I've, uh, I've made some nice money with options, but using them as investment tools, not, mm-hmm. as, uh, not as trading tools. Yep. Um, you, you mentioned a minute ago that the small investors are 23% of the option uh, deal. Is that the number of options traded or the number of transactions? Because I'm guessing a small investor might do, you know, one or two options, and a big investor might do 100 options in the same thing, and they both be counted as one trade. So, it, it's, so which way is it? It's the activity, so the amount of trades that are occurring there. The number of trades. Yeah. Okay. So, alrighty. Well, that's uh, we could have we could have a great some great discussions over options and earnings and uh, other things like that. But meanwhile, um, I'm selling a building in the. I wrote you an email about this a couple weeks ago, so now I'm calling up to bring in my call in my chit, I guess, and selling a building. And the buyers are using a company called Ready Capital to finance it. And so I looked them up, and being a greedy dividend investor. Uh, they pay a healthy dividend. They've got some nice numbers. Uh, the market cap's under a billion, which is a little bit worrisome. And I'd like you to take a look at it for me, if you would, please. Yeah. So let's see here. The company is Ready Capital again. Ticker symbol is RC. And, and exactly what you point out here, it is a real estate finance company. Acquires, manages, originates, and finances small balance commercial loans to purchase small family, office, retail, mixed use, or warehouse properties. Uh, company segments consist of SBC lending and acquisitions, small business lending, and also to residential mortgage banking. Uh, this is also a, an industry I've talked about in the past. It's something that, to be quite frank, we've never bought a business in this area. So I, I don't know enough about the company to, to kind of look through the numbers and say, oh, this look great. I would always recommend kind of further research on how these companies function, what is a good environment for them to be in, how, how are rising interest rates going to impact this mortgage company and they sure. are structured as a REIT. So it's a real estate investment trust. It's not like uh, gosh, what's rocket mortgage, for example. I know they're a company, not a REIT. I am not quite familiar with how exactly these companies are structured. So definitely want to understand that before buying anything like this there, Jim. But looking here sure. at the numbers for RC again, ready capital, short percentage of float, quite surprised by this 5.2% institutional ownership, just 60.3%. I do see price to earnings here, 6.2 versus the industry average of 12.6. Price to sales at 2.6, also favorable against the industry of 5.4. Price to tangible book value, very nice, 1.1, while the industry average at 9.3. Price to cash flow, though, a little strange, 37, much higher than the industry at 6.9. I do see we have a peg ratio going forward of 0.5. That's very, very attractive. I like to see a number around that range. Do see earnings per share over the last one year? They're down 9.3% when the industry has fallen 60.9%. Sales over the last one year, though, well, that's up 26.6%, while the industry was down 49.5%. I do see we have a five year estimated growth rate on earnings per share of 14.2, so that's what gives us a very, very nice peg ratio going forward. Now, we talked about that dividend. Yes, wow, very, very juicy dividend. 11.6% is what I see as the dividend yield. That is a very attractive yield. I see a payout ratio of 70.6, which would tell me 
that it is a very safe and stable div dividend. But I do got to point out, obviously, the fact that now this is a REIT, so earnings can fluctuate quite drastically generally for REITs because if they're buying, selling different buildings that could swing earnings up and down. Do always recommend looking at FFO or funds from operations, what we look at. But again, I'm not sure if that's the case for a mortgage REIT. So we've got to kind of, again, look at how the business does function. I do see their buyback sure. yield kind of strange here. They It's down 17.5% or a negative 17.5%, which means that they have issued a lot of shares. Not necessarily a bad thing for REITs because what they'll do many times, they'll use their capital in the stocks to actually go out and buy real estate, maybe buy loans, things of that nature. So if utilized properly, the stock can be a very, very effective tool for companies to grow the business, grow FFO and earnings down the line. Turning the balance sheet, again, very strange numbers here. Current ratio, nothing there. I see debt to equities at 300%. But this is a financing company, so it could have a, a large material impact on the balance sheet. Have to understand how that functions for a business like this. I do see net margin of 45%, slightly below the industry of 50.3%. And then I see return on equity, 9.9%, below the industry of 102 Current price here for RC Ready Capital, $14.43. I see a 52-week high is $16.78 and a 52-week low of $13.24. Companies held up, I'm going to say, pretty well so far year-to-date, down just 5.1% when the S&P is down about 18%. See, over the last five years, it's up about 72%, slightly trailing, trailing the index there, but you know, 72% returns pretty good, and I'm pretty sure that's just price appreciation, not including the dividend. Uh, I do see a market cap, though. I know you mentioned it's under a billion. I see now it's about $1.6 billion, so it could have increased slightly, perhaps from them issuing shares, and also, too, the price appreciation could have also increased that. Now, looking forward, going out to December 2023, and this is kind of what I, I mean. Most of the time, we do point out FFO, and, and when I pull up my system here, it shows earnings per share, so I'm not sure if that's how you break down the mortgage REITs or what, but that, that's, again, another area of caution that you got to understand. But going out to December 2023, I do see estimated earnings per share of $1.78. That would give us a target sell price of $29.55. So, I mean, that looks very attractive. The earnings are very lucrative, but I do have to also point out they're declining. And uh, this is, again, talking about rising interest rates. How is this going to impact this business? I see this year they're estimated to make $1.88. Well, that's down about 17.8% compared to last year. And then I mentioned the $1.78 next year. So you're in this declining earnings trend, which can be very, very dangerous if interest rates continue to climb. So numbers, I'm going to say they look good here, Jim, but there's a lot more to understand, a lot more to kind of uncover about a business of this nature. Sure. No, I uh, absolutely. Yeah, the earnings, they are trending downward. And I'm just going, That's, what the heck? So I got to do a little bit of reading on it. But I did. I wanted to get your... Uh, your opinion, and mostly I like your, um, you know, I, I, numbers are one thing, but I like the narratives you always provide, Chase. They just, uh, they put an extra bit of, oh, yeah, I never, I got to think about that, too, on, you know, on stuff. So thank you for that. Of course, of course. I always try to point you in the right direction. Yeah, well, uh, you guys do a heck of a job. And uh, good luck with uh, Brent. And, uh, again, thanks for being there. We'll probably call you next week. All right, Jim, that sounds great. Great talking to you as always. All right. See you, see, see you Chase. Bye. All righty. Bye now. All right, that does open another phone line. Again, phone number here, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973.
But with that, let's go out to, I think that's Delmar Heights, and let's speak with Fred. Hey there, Fred. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How can we help you? Hey, Chase. Good morning. First-time caller, long-time listener. I finally be able to decided to pick up the phone and ask for some advice from you. Appreciate your time. Of course. How long have you been listening there, uh, Fred? Uh, about, uh, about, I'd say, three or four years, um, almost every weekend. And um, I, uh, I just wanted to get your take on something. I did. I think I uh, tuned in probably about seven minutes at the top of the hour and heard what you said with respect to the, uh, the oil and gas companies and what's been going on. And I agree with everything you said and more. Uh, my situation is this. I had some disposable income and I read an article, forget where it was, that said, buy these five stocks. And this was about 15 months ago, Chase. Yep. And one of those stocks I bought, and I really questioned myself with all this Green New Deal stuff going on, <laughs> was Occidental Petroleum. Yeah, I got it, and it has quintupled yeah. in price since I got it. So I'm just curious to see, A, uh, wh- how it's performing uh, you know, uh, with respect to the rest of the uh, the industry uh, over the last maybe year or so, and then B, I did hear you say to, to you know to kind of hold for now, but I'm tempted to only hold for a short period of time and then perhaps sell and reinvest in something else. Yeah, and and how much of your portfolio does it does it make up there, Fred? Not much, only okay. about three percent. Only about three percent. Do you have any other energy in the portfolio? I don't have any other energy investments in my portfolio directly. Okay. I mean, I've got a couple of these different funds that are spread out amongst other things, but uh, don't really think I have anything of much substance. Let's put it that way. Okay. All right. Well, with that, let's take a look at the numbers here first and then kind of look at, you know, maybe should you take some off the table? Should you buy something else? We'll, we'll look at the numbers here first. That, that's always a good guiding point. And Occidental is a... Interesting company, just because I, I know that's a, a been a big point of emphasis for Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. They, they've been buying up a lot of that company, which I think has compounded the growth. So congratulations on that that purchase of, again, Occidental Petroleum. Ticker symbol, though, is OXY. Looking here, they are in the oil and gas E&P sector. Short percentage of float, I'm, I'm quite surprised by this. Wow, 9.9%. That means a lot of people here are thinking it's, it's going to go down. That's quite a high level of short positions. And I do wonder if people are like, oh, it's gone up too much, and they think it's going to crash here. But what could happen is if it continues to go higher, sometimes a high short position could be, I think, a bullish indicator because if people have to start uncovering their shorts, it could lead to quite large increases, again, on the upside. Institutional ownership, though, for OXY Occidental, well, that's 82.3%. Here's the valuation ratios for this company. Price to earnings, well, that now stands at 9.6. Gosh, last year they were just terrible, as obviously they got crushed by COVID, and many companies were not making money. Now a lot of these companies are very, very profitable. That does compare to an industry average of 9.3. I see price to sales here, 2.1, below the industry average of 2.2, so that's favorable. Price of tangible book value, 3.9, also below the industry average of 4.9. I see price to cash flow at 4.8. That's also below the industry average of 5.5. So valuation ratios look very, very strong here for Occidental. Only one that was a slight negative there was the price to earnings multiple, but I'm okay with 9.6 times. 
The peg going forward, how much you're paying for that future earnings growth, just 0.3. That's also a very attractive rate. I don't see any earnings growth. I'm wondering, again, if that's because they had negative earnings last year, and now that's what's causing uh, no year-over-year comparison here. Sales growth, though, over the last one year, that's up 75.9%. The industry was up 118.6%. But again, I'm okay with 75.9% sales growth. I do see five-year estimated earnings per share growth. That's looking at 18.5%. That's very attractive. Dividend yield, though, wow, with the huge increase in the stock price, not a very attractive dividend whatsoever, just zero. I'm curious if they've talked about increasing that dividend as now we've seen energy prices recover. I I sure hope so, as I know there's a lot of other energy companies out there that you can get much more attractive yields on. I do see a payout ratio to 2.3%. So again, with rising energy prices, I'm hoping they've talked about increasing that dividend because a payout ratio of 2.3%, they definitely have the capacity to increase uh, the dividend. Turning to the balance sheet, I see a current ratio here of one2 that is below the industry average of 1.4, but that's still plenty of liquidity. I'm, I'm okay with the current ratio, 1.2. I see debt to equity, 110%. That's above the industry of 60%, but at 110%, it is starting to brush up against what we call the warning level. I'm, I'm not saying sell this company because of the debt level, but it is something that you definitely have to keep an eye on. And also, too, are they paying down that debt? Are they taking on more debt? Is it going to go up? This is definitely kind of starting to flash, uh, you know, kind of yellow here as a potential warning sign. Turning to day's inventory outstanding, well, that's at 28.2. That's favorable against the industry average of 30.8. Day's uh, sales outstanding, that's 68.2, above the industry average of 55.5. I'd like to see a little bit better job collecting on their receivables. Profit margin, very strong now at 25.3%, while the industry average was at 19.6%. And return on equity at 26.1%, also above the industry average, 22.7%. Now looking here at the, the current price for Occidental, again, ticker symbol OXY, well, it's $63.26. It has pulled back a little bit from its 52-week high of $69.17. But gosh, you look at that 52-week low, $21.62. So quite a nice appreciation off the bottom. And in fact, year-to-date, Stock is up 118.7%. So it's done very, very well. Again, if you look at the market down, as I talked about earlier in the show, about 20%, energy has been a very strong performing sector industry in this economy. And also, too, why we always talk about the importance of having a diversified portfolio. It's just because technology is going down, the stock market is going down, doesn't mean everything is going down. And energy in Occidental in particular has done quite well. You'd ask how it's done over the last one year. Uh, gosh, stock's up 154.4% over the last one year. Looks like industry's up just 59.4%, so Occidental is definitely outperformed in that regard. Now, look over the last 10 years, though, it's only up 18.3%, and that's because energy was just beaten down so, so hard during the last decade. But uh, again, it, I think it presented many great buying opportunities like the one you got in here, Fred. Now, going forward for the numbers on Occidental, let's see here. We go out to December 2023. I see estimated earnings per share of $6.75. That would give you a target sell price of $112.05. So that still looks very, very attractive. But the one issue that we have with a lot of these energy companies is the huge, huge spread in analyst estimates. I see the low estimate here for Occidental, $0.51. 
and the high estimates fourteen dollars and fifty nine cents, and that's out of twenty five analysts. I mean, there's such a huge variety there. Oil prices, if they turn around and go lower, yeah, this company is going to get crushed. But if they maintain themselves, I think Occidental and a lot of these energy companies, well, obviously, they're they're going to do very very well in an environment like this. So. You know, it's a tough one, Fred. I, I know you mentioned having about 3% in your portfolio. I, I don't know what else you have in your portfolio, but I, I didn't mention having any other energy. I don't know if I would sell it. If you said it was maybe around 10 12% in the portfolio, I'd say, yeah, yeah, pair that back. I mean, look for maybe other opportunities. But at 3%, not having much other energy, I, I think I'd continue to hold it. It might go lower, but I think this is a, a sound company, and I, I, I don't know if I would sell it. I, I Obviously, I have to tell you to do a little more research to make sure you know, the company is performing well. You talk about listening to the conference call, watch the 10Q, 10K, but you know, I, the numbers on the surface here, they, they look strong. Company is performing well. Any other no. questions there, Fred? Thank you, 10K. No, I, I'm all wrapped up. Thank you. All righty. Well, hey, thanks for calling. A privilege to have you call after listening for the, the last few years here, and I'm, I'm glad you decided to join us. But uh, all righty. Well, that does open up another phone line. Again, you want to join the show, it's 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. And about to go to our financial planner, Harrison Johnson, uh, talk about uh, you know, good financial planning topics here. But before we do that, I did want to mention, you know, we always talk about at the beginning of the show, different things that occur throughout the week, maybe hot buttons that, that we discuss. If you find those conversations informational, informative, you know, go to our website. We actually do write a, a blog. We call it a newsletter as well. And you can sign up for that newsletter and see all the topics that we talked about during the week. We only pull out a handful during the show. Again, you go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter right there. But with that, let's go out to Harrison and uh, we'll talk with Harrison about our financial planning topics. Good morning, Harrison. How are we doing? Hey, Chase. How's it going? Good, good. Uh, are you on your way uh, to Knott's Berry Farm already, or are you there? I'm actually walking through the parking lot right now, so I'm about <laughs> to walk under a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time to, to join us this morning, but uh, what are we talking about again? I, I think we talked about estate planning, beneficiaries. Is, is that, that the topic? Yeah, there's a couple things I wanted to talk about. So first off, um, I wanted to touch on something that's a little bit new, some new information coming from the IRS. So a couple of years ago, the way that inherited IRAs changed. Prior to 2020, if um, you inherited an IRA from someone who's not your spouse, so a parent or an uncle or something like that, if you inherited that an IRA, you would have to take distributions from that, which are taxable, but you could stretch those distributions out over your life expectancy. So. And that's a really nice benefit. If you had a large account, you could take little pieces every single year, keep a lot of that money in that tax-deferred growth stage. Um, as of 2020, um, now the rule is, well, you can't stretch those distributions out anymore. You have to deplete that account within 10 years, which means for most people, if you have an IRA, you're going to have to deplete it much quicker than you normally would, which means you lose the tax-deferred growth. And also, you're taking larger distributions, which can cause you to jump up into higher tax brackets. Um, now, the way that pretty much everyone interpreted that, including the information that the IRS was giving us, was 
it doesn't matter how you distribute that money as long as it's done within 10 years. Now the IRS is saying, well, maybe we're going to say that you have to take required minimum distributions every single year, and then whatever's left at the end of 10 years has to come out. So this kind of puts us in a little bit of a gray area, especially for people who inherited IRAs last year, like in 2021, because technically if you're supposed to take an RMD, you should have done that last year, but the IRS didn't tell us to do it last year. So it's kind of this messed up situation right now. We'll have to see um, more guidance that the IRS gives us. But basically, if you have inherited an IRA in the last couple of years, you're going to want to make sure that you're up to date on what the IRS says so that you don't miss any required minimum distributions and then have to pay penalties for that. And just to be clear, so people know, the penalty for a distribution or a missed RMD is is what again? Fifty percent, fifty percent, five zero. Yeah. So <laughs> if you're supposed to take ten grand and you don't, you have a five thousand dollar penalty for that. So it's it's a very large penalty, and you do not want to miss it. So again, I'm. It's kind of frustrating that the IRS is kind of teeter tottering on this. Um, we'll just have to see what uh, what guidance they give us. But again, it's something that we'll just have to kind of continue to watch play out here. Well, it's especially so important too because it's the same rule, or the, at least we thought for the, like a Roth IRA, right? You had an inherited Roth. You had ten years to take it out, which in theory means I would wait until year ten because you just get tax free growth and yeah. then you take it all out. But now if they're changing the rules on you and, and they're not communicating effectively, it, it could really mess up your plan. Or, you know, maybe you inherit inherit an IRA and you are working for let's say the next five years and you say, Well, I'm just gonna wait to take the distribution for five years because now I don't have any income in retirement that will reduce the amount of taxes coming out of the inherited IRA. It's it's definitely something you're right, you gotta you gotta stay on top of. Yeah, I mean you're exactly right. The the Roth is the same thing. It's it's still subject to the ten year rule, but what does that mean? Um, because you're right, for pretty much everybody, the best thing would to do would be to wait till ten years and then withdraw a lump sum because it's not taxable. Um, so yeah, it's frustrating, but we will see what the IRS says. Um, in addition to that, I, I wanted to talk about. Uh, kind of on that same vein of inherited IRAs. If you have an IRA, you want to make sure you check those beneficiaries, make sure they are up to date. Um, Sometimes people will have a living trust as a beneficiary of an IRA. Pretty much you never want to do that. You either want to have an individual as a beneficiary, or in some cases you can have a retirement trust, a specific retirement trust for that. But, um, you know, in most cases, an individual will do just fine for those beneficiaries. So make sure you're up to date on that as well. Well, and, and just kind of compound on the fact of why a living trust is so dangerous is just the, the tax situation, correct? Yeah. And, you know, living trusts in themselves are not bad. Many people need living trusts, and it's a good thing because you avoid probate. It, it makes sure that everything can go according to your wishes, and the state doesn't decide. So living trusts themselves are, are good, but some people see that as, well, that means everything belongs in the trust, and that's not true. So basically what happens, if you have a living trust that's a beneficiary of an IRA or any type of retirement account, usually um, that money needs to be distributed faster than it otherwise normally would. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you lose some of the tax benefits, you can have larger distributions. So that's the negative part of it. With a retirement trust, a specific retirement trust, in many cases that can make sense, especially if the IRA is larger. It's the same tax situation as if it was an individual account, but with a retirement trust you get more liability protection and um, 
you get a little bit more control, a little bit more flexibility. But there's an extra cost to have the retirement trust drafted. So um, if for smaller IRAs, I think just a, a regular individual as a beneficiary would be fine. If you've got a larger IRA, you know, close to a million dollars or more, you might want to look at a retirement trust for the extra liability coverage that it provides. Yeah, yeah, great points there. And uh, I, did we have one other topic we we're going to talk about today? I, I think we were talking about making sure your beneficiaries are set up properly. Uh, correct. That was that was it. Yeah, we had a, a situation this week actually, or I guess it's kind of been going on where someone had a, their beneficiary of their IRA was an individual, but then in their will they said that they wanted that beneficiary in this case their daughter to distribute money to the spouse of the owner and so now what's happening is the daughter inherited this account she's supposed to take money that's taxable to her and then give that money to her stepmother which is you know it's when you look at a will maybe it could have been done better but now after the death of the original owner where we kind of have to do what what the will says but technically um, beneficiary designations are supposed to trump anything that's in a will or a trust. So it's it's kind of just an issue. So that's, again, why you want to make sure you're up to date on your beneficiaries, but also how your estate plan is supposed to distribute your assets so that you don't give any tax problems or just asset distribution problems to your heirs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so important. I know a lot of times it's like you may just want to consult with somebody to make sure everything's on the same page because, you know, you, you can't come back and fix it once you're gone and you could leave your family in a, a very difficult situation to, to try and figure out. So having that plan in place is, is always important. I know that's what you do a great job of with the financial planning is, is making sure there is a plan in place. And, you know, the estate planning side, you don't write the trust. We're not estate attorneys, but you do a great job kind of pulling that whole plan together for people. So thanks for joining us this morning, Harrison, and uh, have a great weekend. We'll, we'll see you Monday. All right. Thanks, Chase. We'll see you Monday. All righty. Well, that does open another phone line. If you, again, want to join the show again, there's there's lots of great buys out there right now. I mean, gosh, stock market's pulled back quite drastically. I, I think this is the time you want to be looking at, at buying the right companies at the right prices. You want to join the show. Phone number here, 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Tell you a little secret, all phone lines are open right now. So if you call at this moment, you'll be the first up. With that, though, uh, we do take emails. We do take uh, notes on our website. If if you don't want to call into the show, you can, again, send us a quick email or contact us on, on the website and just let us know what you want to talk about. We did get an email this past week uh, that said, good morning, I was listening to a radio show after of yours this past Saturday. They were talking about energy MLPs that make you more of an owner as opposed to a stockholder. They spoke of a 7% dividend and that while oil and gas prices were elevated, it's a good time to get in. Specifically, it was Global X MLP. Symbol is MLPX. And just said, just curious about your thoughts. I've never heard of it. Maybe cover it in your radio show program. And that comes from Tom. Uh, so with that, let's take a look here at Global X MLP. And when I look at this, unfortunately, I, I can't get too many numbers from it, but it is an interesting kind of topic here. It's Global XMLP and Energy Infrastructure ETF. The reason I can't pull any numbers on it is because it is a ETF. It's a bunch of different companies here. And, and when you're looking at it, investing in products like this, 
we're not big fans of it because sometimes you're going to get some great companies in there and other times you're going to get some junk in there. I'd rather get the good company and buy the good companies rather than having some of the junky companies in there. And, per, and, and this one in particular, top 10 holding about 67%. So looking at names like Enbridge, TC Energy Corp, Kinder Morgan, it's just a compilation of a bunch of different, it looks like primarily pipelines. So I, I unfortunately can't give you too much information on this here, Tom, but uh, I, I, I would say be careful of it. The, the dividend... I, I don't see 7%. It looks like it could have appreciated here as a dividend is now just 5.4%, which is still a good yield. But I, I do worry, again, about understanding what's in the ETF, what companies you own. I, I would r rather say maybe look at some of the companies in this ETF. Maybe look at a Kinder Morgan and say, hey, is this a good opportunity to buy a company like that? I'd rather own that business than take part in the ETF. One thing I will point out, however, is I'm not a tax attorney, I'm not a CPA or anything like that, but I do know that MLPs are taxed differently. I'm not sure how it's impacted if you buy an MLP ETF. Does that bypass the taxation of an MLP? Is it now taxed all of a sudden like a stock? So that's something that, that you may want to consider. That, that could actually be a benefit to perhaps buying an ETF over a particular MLP, something you may want to consult a tax consultant, a CPA with, uh, in regard to the taxation of MLPs versus MLP ETF. So, so I don't have more information for you on that, Tom, but I, I hope it does kind of point you in the right direction. But with that, I, I do see we now have a couple callers, so let's head back out to the calls, and uh, let's go out to San Diego and speak with Wayne. Hey there, Wayne. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How can I help you this morning? Good morning, Chase. Doing a good job by yourself. Thank you. You have to retire. Yeah, I, I know. He, he's not ready yet, but uh, he'll, he'll be around. <laughs> I grew up in a family business, so I understand. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at Camping, Camping World Holdings, CWH. I haven't bought any. I'm inquiring because I think it could be a reopening type of situation. People are going to go during the summer, maybe even the fall, go to the campgrounds. But then we got to worry about if the economy does get worse their income revenue would go down. I'm so I'd like your opinion. Yeah, and, and camping world. I'm glad you called about this one because it, it, it's one that that you know I used to watch the show The Profit a lot. I know Marcus Lamonis was the, the CEO here, and um, it, it's a business that I know he uh, well runs, and uh, it did quite well. I think during a lot of the reopening of COVID, I'm very curious where it stands now. But with that, let's take a look at Camping World Holdings again. Ticker symbol here is CWH. Very strange. Short percentage of float, 47.9%. What the heck is going on there? We want to look and understand that. I mean, this could be a huge problem if it continues to go lower and more shorts pile in. However, as I talked about earlier, if the shorts are uncovered, I mean, this stock could pop dramatically. That is a strange number. I don't think I've seen a short position that high on a stock that we've looked at in recent recent months, recent years even. <laughs> but institutional ownership, well, that's 90%. Valuations, this is, Wow. Price to earnings, 4.6. That's very attractive against an industry average of 14. Price to sales, also good at 0.3. The industry average is 0.5. I don't see anything for price to tangible book value, which tells me they have a lot of intangible assets or no equity. But I do see a pro positive price to book value, 8.5. So that then tells me there are more intangibles because if you take away all those, there, there is no equity in the company. Looking at price to cash flow, also not material. That is strange that they would have earnings. But no cash flow. I'd have to take a closer look at the cash flow statement and the income statement to see where the, the discrepancy is between those two. 
I do see a, a peg ratio going forward is 0.1. That's very attractive. Earnings per share growth over the last one year, well, that's up 20.8%. Industry was up 90.6%, but hey, 21% earnings growth is still pretty good. Sales growth over that time frame also up 17.4%, while the industry was up 36%. Five-year estimated earnings per share growth at 34.7%. That's very attractive. We don't understand where is this growth coming from because that could that could just, you know, send the PE even even lower. So something to kind of dive down deeper into. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at the dividend here, wow. I, I didn't know the company paid a dividend, but now the dividend yield says 9.6%. That's very, very attractive. Uh, payout ratio. 62 cents quarterly. 62. I bet you if they have issues, it'll get cut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one thing about a business like this is it can be very cyclical, and all of a sudden, if it changes quite drastically, you're right, they could cut that dividend. But... I do see the payout ratio is 32.4%, which tells me it, it could give them some room for air if things do pull back here over the next few years. Uh, also, too, the company's been buying back a ton of stock. I see a buyback yield 22.9%, so that's really reduced the shares outstanding over last year. The balance sheet, very strange. Current ratio, 1.3. That's plenty of liquidity there. But the debt to equity, gosh, i got to make sure I'm saying this right, 2,780%. Very, very high debt to equity. But one thing is, I talked about this company buying back stock. That's going to reduce the equity. That's going to have an impact on debt to equity. The other thing is, I believe with the RVs that this company does the financing for them. So how is the financing impacting that balance sheet that could kind of give it an okay mark rather than saying, oh, don't buy it because of the high debt to equity. If you understand the financing and how it's impacting the balance sheet, that, that could actually allow for you to buy a company that has a debt to equity at that level. I do see a net margin here for the company at 3.7%, right around the industry average at 3.8%. And also see return on equity, very strange, 203.4%, huge return on equity, I again believe because the company has very little equity after buying back all that stock. Turning to the current price for Camping World Holdings, well, it's $26.06. 52-week high, well, that's $46.77, and the 52-week low, kind of near that at 24 dollars and 58 cents year to date not done well down about 34.2 um, percent even performing worse than the S&P 500 here down about 18 percent now company size one thing I was curious on it's a pretty small company with a market cap of just about one billion dollars going forward for camping world camping world holdings though go out to December 2023 I do see estimated earnings per share of four dollars and sixty-five cents that would give us a target sell price of $77.19. That looks very attractive. But again, like I talked about with a, a recent caller about the earnings decline, I mean, this year their right. estimate make $5.01. That's a year-over-year -year decline of 27%. And then you have another 7% decline next year. I mean, this is not a favorable outlook. I, I don't like to see companies have that type of earnings decline. Uh, definitely something that, that would have to be understood. The valuations look great on it. The balance sheet's definitely a question mark. I mean, that dividend is, is very <laughs> intriguing, that's for sure. But um, I, I don't want to say yes or no on it yet. Uh, I, I would say there's definitely some big question marks that would have to be answered. But there could Do you be show potential. an earnings range? Earnings range here? Actually, it is, it's pretty pretty tight and there's 10 analysts for 2023 it's $4.30 and the, the high is 5.98 so it's not super tight yeah. but it's not like the energy company where it was you know 50 cents and, and ten dollars a right. share so <laughs> it's tight enough for me to have comfort in it and especially with 10 analysts for a billion dollar market cap 
uh, I, I'd say that, that that's a pretty pretty decent range there. Wait till July to see where the stock is after the Fed raises rates twice. Yeah, I, it could be something to maybe add to the, the watch list because this is something yeah. that you know is a very yeah, very questionable, very cyclical. Also, too, I mean, are people going to still be doing the RV type of trips or are they going to go back to flying places? I mean, uh, I know I've kind of gotten a little bit more hesitant on flying just because of the cost of air freight. Not air freight, but the, the air, <laughs> you air can prices. Buy, you can run an RV for a trip. Yeah, exactly. Time. But then on the other side, too, the gas to fill up the RV is crazy, so you just can't go anywhere. <laughs> Even if you get a diesel one, they're just as high. Oh, yeah. So it, it's uh, it's an interesting time. I mean, it's this company in particular, I think it could be a potential, but, um, you know, there's a lot more to the story that, that I would want to understand. Okay. Have a good day. Thanks again. All right. Thank you so much for calling, Wayne. Great talking to you as always. All righty. I would say that it opens up another line, and I, I do see Michael and Joanne. I, I do have to apologize. We just have a couple of minutes here, and, and last time I did the show by myself, I took a call around this time, and I did not get to finish it. So I, I do want to say uh, please call in next week. I will be here again next Saturday. Uh, and I, I do see Michael wants to talk about Vici Properties. I, I know that's a, a real estate investment trust. Uh, that could be an interesting play here with uh, inflation, and also, too, I know it's a, a nice dividend payer. And then I, I see Joanne wants to talk about WKS. I'm not sure what company that is off the top of my mind, but please call again again next Saturday, and I, I'd be more than happy to cover those businesses or send me an email or a, a note on the website, and I'll be sure to cover it on next Saturday's show. But with a few minutes left, there are a couple other topics I can kind of talk about. Uh, you know, we've talked a, a lot about cryptocurrency on this show. Uh, definitely had a lot of struggles this year. I mean, if you just look at Bitcoin in particular, it's now around, gosh, 29,000, I believe it is, around this morning. And it, it's, it's definitely not held up as many other people were hoping it was going to provide that diversification away from stocks and so forth. It, it has not done that by any means. But the interesting thing about Bitcoin right now, and according to recent data, is that now 40% of Bitcoin investors have lost money on their investment. I know there still are investors that have made strong returns, but I do worry that this hurts the argument for larger adoption. When you listen to you know people talk about it, it's like, oh, well, it's going to be more and more common. I just don't know if that's going to occur as more and more people lose money on it. I think people are going to start to shift away from it and look for that safe haven, especially because there's no rents, there's no earnings, there's no interest. There's no way to truly analyze Bitcoin, where right now we have downturns. We're very confident in our companies because of the valuation and the fundamentals. With Bitcoin, you're just left with the price and wondering if it's going to go higher. So I, I'm very curious to see what happens with Bitcoin here, cryptocurrencies over the next few weeks, few months, few years even for that matter. I, I again, would recommend staying away from from this type of asset class, it, there's just nothing backing it up, in, in my opinion, and it, it could be a very, very dangerous position to hold, uh, especially as the Fed does start to kind of enact that constraining of the money supply and rising interest rates. I, I think that, that crypto could have had its good days behind it, and uh, going forward, it, it could be a dangerous, dangerous place to be investing. So be very careful with the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I will be talking about uh, cryptocurrency in more detail on uh, Fox 5 this Wednesday, normally around 7.40 a.m., uh, and kind of just breaking down the cryptocurrency market and kind of where I see that going here. But uh, with that, thank you for joining me this morning and listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you would like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, 
feel free to call myself, Chase Wilsey, or Brent Wilsey at 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858-546-4306. Please visit our website at smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. And for more daily educational information along with investment tips, go to our Facebook group, Smart Investing with Brent and Chase Wilsey. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. And may I say, not in a